Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Some of the stories Jay and I consider this week are the continued commentary from the Walmart FCPA settlement. We have a new FCPA settlement in the Technique FMC case. Um, Dylan Toker writes a couple of great articles on uh, the fallout from the Walmart settlement, including pre-settlement expenditures and waiver of attorney-client privilege. The Department of Justice gets a conviction in the Boston FCPA sting case involving Haiti. Mike Lynch took the stand in the HP autonomy civil litigation in the United Kingdom and excoriated Meg Whitman. We took a look at an internal controls failure at the Sacramento Kings. What is the state of cybersecurity in 2019? The EU whistleblower initiative and can corporate, excuse me, can regulators leverage monitors? We discussed my five-part podcast series with Terry Orr, Managing Director of Kroll on the current state of compliance. Celebrate the addition of a new podcast to the Compliance Podcast Network, The Integrity Factor, and a new ebook that I wrote and has been published by Hanzo. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and now a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back with Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen, for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This week, it's episode 160 for the week ending June 28th, 2019, the halfway to the holidays edition. Yes, for those of you worried about holiday shopping, we are halfway to the holiday season. I think that means there are about uh, 20 Fridays left before the holidays are here. So get out there and start shopping. So, Jay, uh, you are in a, uh, a remote location today. You want to tell us where you're at? Yeah, I'm uh, not too far away from the moons of Endor. I'm coming to you from the top of the parking structure at Disneyland in California Adventure. So is that commitment or what, ladies and gentlemen? Sure. Uh, This week we have another settlement. TechNIP FMC pays $296 million to settle FCPA offenses. Uh, the oil and gas company, which is headquartered in London, agreed on Tuesday to pay criminal penalties of $296 million to resolve violations of the FCPA. The DOJ assessed total criminal penalties of $296 and it's against Technic FMC and its U.S. subsidiary. About $214 million of the total penalties would go to enforcement authorities in Brazil. The remaining portion, $81.9 million, stays here in the U.S. Uh, the company entered into a three-year deferred prosecution agreement with the DOJ. The DPA charged the company with two counts of the conspiracy to violate the anti-bribery provisions of the FCPA. The DPA did not require the company to appoint an independent monitor. 
Um, the company says it also had reached an agreement in principle with the SEC, subject to final approval uh, as of taping this morning. Uh, we do not have any more information on that. And it was um, a group effort. Once again, the DOJ set the governments of Australia, Brazil, France, Italy, Monaco, and the United Kingdom all help. So if the name sounds familiar to you, it's a recidivist. This has uh, come around once before, but um, from what the government has said and reporting, which we link to from both the um, um, FCPA blog and from our colleague Dylan Tokar, who's now at the Wall Street Journal. So, uh, Tom, uh, anything to add on Technic FMC? So the uh, uh, a couple of uh, interesting notes, one of which you highlighted, Jay, which is Technip is a recidivist, uh, two-time loser under the uh, FCPA. Uh, second of all, this is the first time we've ever had a merger where both merger partners um, were under investigation at the time of the merger. So Technip uh, merged with uh, FMC, I believe, in uh, January of uh, uh, 2018. And uh, at the time, they were both under investigation. So we have the anomaly of two separate FCPA violations from two former companies who are now one company, and that company is Technip FMC. So um, kudos to both uh, Technip and FMC for their work to garner uh, the uh, uh, enforcement action result that they did. Uh, they both have worked very hard in terms of remediation of their uh, compliance program. So, and they uh, did not require monitor. So, unlike Walmart uh, the week before, um, they um, they did not require monitor. So uh, that really leads into uh, the next uh, segment, Jay, where. Uh, the Walmart commentary continued this week. Uh, I wrote a four-part series on it. Mike Volkoff had a three-part series. Uh, other commentators uh, also commented uh, on the case. Matt Kelly said it's the end of an era uh, with this prosecution and waved goodbye to it as he did the the Game of Thrones. Uh, I'm not sure I agree that it's the end of an era, but uh, interesting commentary from Matt and uh, always uh, his uh, fascinating angles on things. So, Lots of uh, good uh, lessons learned from Walmart, I think. And uh, Dylan uh, Topar uh, wrote, um, I guess maybe that will lead into segment three that you can explore a little bit. He wrote a couple of very interesting articles in uh, the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal about Walmart. Uh, frankly, I thought he hit them out of the park. You want to tell our listeners about them? Yeah, um, this this is something entitled Analysis Walmart's spend-and-tell strategy paid off for bribery for its bribery uh, settlement. Quarter after quarter, the figure grew. By the time Walmart, Inc. reached a long-awaited settlement with the U.S. authorities last week, the company had amassed more than $900 million in cost from compliance enhancements and internal investigations into the bribery law violations in Mexico, Brazil, China, and India. So uh, government officials in late 2016 had sought a billion dollars from the company, but after several years of negotiation, Walmart ultimately reduced that figure down to $282 million. And what seems to have been a big factor, according to Dylan, is that uh, very soon after, uh, in 2013, when the, after the investigation had started, the company started breaking out at expenditures on a quarterly basis, 
saying how much money was spent on investigation and how much was spent on remediation in the compliance program. And the majority of the $900 million that Walmart paid in legal costs was not spent directly on compliance. The retailer spent about $509 million on investigations, chiefly through the law firm of Jones Day. So um, basically Dylan's point is that Walmart really became aggressive about the amount of money it was spending on both the investigation and the remediation, uh, consistently reminding the government of that. And to the points that you raised earlier, uh, Tom, I think that led them to the very successful outcome. And the only thing that, you know, kept it from being a complete win was that they still need to bring on a monitor for a couple years. But even that, I think they come out well because they uh, really have a very limited scope of what the monitor needs to look at. So, Jay, if, if uh, I could just add, the uh, the thing that really uh, struck me about the entire Walmart spend, uh, and Dylan, I think, rightly points out the uh, PR campaign that Walmart uh, u- utilized uh, on their spend, but $900 million is still $900 million, And when you tack on the fine and penalty, we're talking nearly $1.2 billion. So uh, the pre-settlement costs are over three times the amount of the fine and penalty. That doesn't even begin to take into account the lost time, um, uh, uh, loss of uh, stock price, loss of share price, and other damage uh, to the company and what it's going to mean for the company going forward in terms of loss of business in addition to uh, additional scrutinies uh, that uh, governments will put on them, particularly local governments. So – the cost were, was real, and by publicizing that number, I hope compliance practitioners can utilize this when they uh, talk to their board of directors and they talk to their senior management. There are real costs to these kinds of cases. Obviously, the world's largest retailer is going to have a, a very high cost, but if you're doing business across the globe, you could easily get uh, 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 caught in and have to do a investigation such as Walmart did, and if you're not Walmart – uh, the cost can be devastating to you. Uh, Jay, if I could just add um, an article that was posted by Dylan Tokar uh, on the Risk and Compliance Journal after uh, we uh, prepared our show notes, um, The and I'm going to link to it as an addendum. Uh, he wrote an article about the privilege dispute that Walmart got into with the government. And I think this is very instructive reading. There was a uh, Walmart voluntarily allowed 18 current and former employees to uh, be interviewed by the government, agreeing that their uh, uh, statements, wasn't testimony, uh, would not uh, constitute a uh, waiver of the attorney-client privilege when Justice Department thereafter tried to subpoena a former general counsel of Walmart to testify about statements made during a voluntary interview. The government, the company rather, balked at that and uh, uh, defended or or tried to have it quashed under the attorney-client privilege, the uh, Court of Appeals held that uh, uh, in Walmart's favor. So, um, and I think that was probably the correct legal ruling uh, because there was no voluntary waiver. But it has led the government to stop handing out these non-waiver agreements and what that will mean in terms of cooperation Credit for the government going forward is an open question. The government can't um, negatively charge companies or not credit them if they stand on the attorney-client privilege, but that could be a serious lack of um, cooperation. We fought that battle 
literally 20 years ago, or now almost 20 year, uh, years ago, at least in the first part of the decade, around Enron and uh, Dynergy in Houston. And so the um, the attempts by the government to get companies to waive the attorney-client privilege was met with a, a very strong pushback from the ABA and business groups. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But uh, I just wanted to shout out to Dylan. These are his first two articles. And, and frankly, I think he hit them out of the park on both ones. So really interested uh, and excited to see what else he's going to come up with going forward. Definitely. So, uh, Tom, we're turning our attention to London now. Uh, Mike Lynch takes the stand and says that Meg Whitman wasn't up to the job. Uh, What are we talking about here? There is a fascinating trial, civil litigation going on in London right now where Hewlett Packard is suing uh, Mike Lynch and others from its former acquired company Autonomy, claiming that Autonomy defrauded HP um, by selling itself to HP. And uh, as anomalous as that may sound, um, the uh, CFO of HP, excuse me, of Autonomy was um, criminally convicted in the United States over allegations. But this is not in the United States. It's in Britain. And Mike Lynch, the former CEO of Autonomy, uh, is starting a 22-day testimony run. And I think it's going to be fascinating. Uh, It started off uh, really out out of the box uh, where he blamed the uh, incoming head of HP, one Meg Whitman, you may have heard of her, uh, who he said could not cope with all the fires uh, burning at HP after she took over from the previous CEO, Leo Apotheker, uh, who was the main architect behind the plan to acquire HP. But he was ousted after um, shareholders revolted over this strategy and HP's plummeting share price. I followed this case uh, fairly extensively, and internally at HP, it was recognized that it would be uh, the potential for a disaster, which, of course, it was after HP paid eleven billion dollars for autonomy and then 18 months later wrote off 8.8 billion of the deal uh and uh for hp to claim it was hoodwinked uh, and that kind of uh transaction seems uh to me to be uh a, a pretty strong claim nevertheless uh the trial's going on it's going to be interesting to see uh what will happen in london uh, i can't believe a british jury would uh uphold a U- u.s's companies claiming that a a British company hoodwinked him, uh, but Mike Lynch is under criminal indictment in the United States, so we could have the anomaly of uh, he wins on a civil suit in London and he loses in a criminal case in the United States. What that does for our relations with the United Kingdom is an open question. But he came out of the gate blasting uh, HP for uh, not only um, not integrating, but its overall conduct going forward. So uh, next up, uh, coming to us from the DOJ this past Thursday, June 20th, Two businessmen convicted of international bribery offenses, and this is uh, back to the mothership in Boston. Uh, A federal jury in Boston found that the chairman and CEO of an investment firm and a member of the investment firm's board of directors were guilty for their participation in a scheme to bribe officials of the Republic of Haiti in exchange for business and advantages for the investment firm. Uh, We've been tracking this story for a couple of years Roger Richard Bonsi, 74, a dual U.S. and Haitian citizen who resides in Madrid, Spain, and Joseph Batiste, 66, of Fulton, Maryland, were found guilty after a two-week trial. 
Uh, basically, these two gentlemen conspired to pay millions of dollars in bribes to Haitian officials to do business there. Today's guilty verdict sends a strong message to those who use corrupt means to obtain unfair and illegal business advantages that they will be processed, prosecuted to the fullest extent possible by the DOJ. Uh, this was one of those uh, undercover situ situations where uh, FBI agents posed as potential investors in connection with the development of a port and uh, a concrete factory in Haiti. So uh, was there some scuttlebutt earlier last week, Tom, about the government um, not having their evidence in order, or am I mixing this up? Nope, nope. This was the case. The FBI was actually skewered because they um, lost uh, a large number of uh, audio tapes of uh, uh, recordings of underco undercover operatives in this sting case. And then uh, the recordings they had apparently were such poor quality uh, that you couldn't tell really what was on them. But nevertheless, a big, uh, big win for the uh, government uh, after the uh, Gunsting case, this is a, a, a pretty a significant win. It's the first FCPA sting case since the gunsting debacle. So uh, it wouldn't be this week in the FCPA without us uh, hearing from the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly. Uh, what is Matt's uh, look talking about with regard to an internal control earball in Sacramento? So, uh in addition to absolutely being the coolest guy and continue to actually get cooler, uh, which uh, is uh, pretty amazing in and of itself, and uh, comparing uh, the Walmart settlement to the end of the Game of Thrones, uh, he took a look at a huge internal control failure at the Sacramento Kings. Uh, I would say they're the laughing stock of the NBA, but um, can't really say that when James Dolan is involved in anything, the owner of the Knicks. But um, the former chief revenue officer for Sacramento was sentenced to seven years in prison for duping some of California's largest businesses into wiring over $13 million to bank accounts of shell companies he secretly controlled so he could purloin the money. He worked as uh, Jeffrey David, worked as the King's top sales executive from 2011 to 2018. Before that, had been VP of corporate partnerships since 2006. And he used this as a way to um, convince companies who had purchased naming rights for the Sacramento uh, Arena, new Sacramento Arena that they conned the people of Sacramento into paying for, uh, to um, uh, the companies had long-term payouts, and he offered them substantial discounts if they would pay for the naming rights in uh, a lump sum. So he got um, Golden Credit One. And uh, one other company, Kaiser Permanente, to pay uh, 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 large sums to his companies. His company was called Sacramento Sports Partners. And apparently they did no due diligence um, or little or no due diligence uh, because they got an invoice which was uh, signed on uh, King's letterhead and forged King's uh, executive signature. Um, and then um, David took it a step further where he forged signatures of Golden One and Kaiser executives to get the wire payments processed into his accounts. It really shows the need, Jay, for not only robust controls, because uh, I believe the controls were in place. You didn't really have control override, but you had uh, just fraud. And um, 
We talk about two-step authentication on uh, password changing and password protection. Perhaps companies are going to have to go to two-step authentication for payment of invoices. I recognize that's a could be a, a quite a step. Nevertheless, uh, when uh, you have this amount of money, uh, perhaps companies need to uh, um, take a step further. But a really interesting article from Matt. Once again, uh, not only is the coolest guy in compliance, but he's getting cooler by the day. So uh, next up, we have an article from one of our um, resources that we usually cover each week, Jonathan Rush and his uh, Dipping Through Geometries. Uh, in this article, he takes a look at uh, the Australian telecommunications company Telstra, which recently released its security report for 2019. Uh, the white paper drew on interviews with 1,000 298 security professionals, 61% from Asia Pacific, 39% in Europe. And here are some of the highlights of the report. In the past 12 months, there has been a material shift in the priorities of both defenders and attackers. Data breaches, as defined as incidents that result in the confirmed disclosure of sensitive data to unauthorized parties are on the rise. In particular, 63% of global respondents and 65% of those in Australia reported that their businesses were interrupted due to security breaches or phishing. Other issues that have been pointed out are ransomware attacks and ransom payments. And finally, uh, that there's been more success with data retrieval. Uh, The report also commented that while ransomware is still pervasive and profitable for cyber criminals, most potential victims have adopted policies and safeguards. The key message from the report in the words of group executive Michael Ebeld is that security has moved far beyond the maintenance of firewalls and is now a whole of business concern for C-level executives. So, uh, Sounds like it's um, pretty much online with what we're hearing out here, but it's good to have that information uh, summarized and in one place. Next up, Tom, uh, we're going to take a look at an EU whistleblower initiative and wondering how that exactly uh, enhances corporate culture. So, Jay, the EU recently approved an enhanced and unified whistleblower protection across the EU member states. It's a directive uh, which will go into force and requiring companies of a certain size to establish well-designed whistleblower uh, procedures and grants dramatically extended protection to whistleblowers, including the right to bypass internal channels and go directly to government regulators and receive anti-retaliation protection. In other words, whistleblowers are now protected if they choose to alert authorities directly with no obligation to report internally. Uh, that's the rule, or that will be the directive. But what I found equally interesting was uh, the author, Pauline Blondet, uh, gave uh, some tips on what companies need to do to establish a culture of trust. And these are things that I think every CCO and compliance practitioner needs to take a look at and see if uh, this is uh, if, if you can answer these questions about your company. I'd like to just run through them. Be clear about your commitment to integrity and practice an active open-door policy. Two, be transparent about the reporting and investigative process. Three, effectively sanction wrongdoings. Number four, communicate the fact that wrongdoings are systematically sanctioned. And five, actively incentivize good behavior. So I was really struck by um, the uh, uh, 
how those could be used, not simply for a whistleblower, but really for an entire uh, company to build a culture of ethics, a culture of compliance, and most importantly, a culture of trust. I know that's something that you and your AMI colleagues uh, talk about quite a bit, but this really gives um, compliance officers a way to think through that and really to a way to self-assess where their culture might be before they call uh, AMI to come in. How can regulators leverage monitors? And while most compliance practitioners are aware of the roles that monitors play in FCPA enforcement, there are also other uses for independent monitors and are much broader than simply in the criminal or civil enforcement actions. Federal agencies use monitors for a wide variety of roles to ensure compliance with agreements. Uh, at its best, most basic level, an independent monitor is a way for the government to extend its reach, both in terms of lengthening out the time of true government oversight and through many techniques that we've discussed in the past. Uh, different uh, situations that I look at in the blog are, uh, most recently, the FCC used an independent monitor and the merger between ATT and DirecTV to uh, ensure compliance with certain merger conditions. We've also seen this come up in the area of monitoring hospital conversions when you have a for-profit and a non-profit hospital merging. And uh, finally, they can also be used in non-regulatory areas. So uh, the bottom line is that independent monitors can come in and look at the system of controls in a wide variety of regulatory and legal arenas. You don't have to do this all the time, but it's something you may need to do not even on every year, but once in a while. And it's a good practice to have somebody come in, take a look at how your company is doing, and then report back. It's money well spent because you can have established that the organization being reviewed has a good program, and if you need to fine-tune your program in certain ways, you now have a roadmap to follow. So that is, uh, as I said, my continuing um, series that's on CCI. Tom, you've had a five-part series this week where you took a look at compliance with Terry Orr of Kroll. What were some of the subjects you addressed? So, uh, Jay, we took a look at the current state of compliance through Terry's eyes, and he is not a lawyer. He's a forensic auditor, CPA type, and it was a, <clears throat> really a fascinating journey. Uh, we took a look at some recent enforcement actions, the new DOJ guidance, and then really two areas that I think are ripe for exploration, which Terry's been thinking about quite a bit. The first was private equity and compliance, and then the second was new challenges in healthcare. And there he focused on a, a case out of Dallas, which was a, started off as a key TAM case, but they used the Travel Act, uh, which occasionally touches the FCPA, uh, to go after uh, doctors uh, and physicians who'd engaged in uh, bribery and corruption around uh, hospitals and where they work. So really good stuff. Uh, I think um, everyone... Um, should check it out. And uh, I know uh, the the series uh, we put together was uh, really interesting. Jay, I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce a new uh, addition to the Compliance Podcast Network family of podcasts. Uh, AP Capaldo and Marcia Weldon have joined at, on their podcast, The Integrity Factor. And um, they're going to take a look at uh, compliance from, uh, as they call them, compliance grinders, uh, perspective. Marcia just uh, recently concluded the organization of the Miami Law Conference uh, uh, Compliance Across Borders, 
AP is a compliance officer who is a millennial, and she's going to bring a millennial's perspective. So it's going to be interesting uh, to see what they come up with. The premiere was this week. It's on the uh, Compliance Podcast Network. I've linked to it in the show notes. Uh, then I also, um, Hanzo actually published a book. I collaborated uh, with them on an ebook, The 2019 Guide to Internal Investigations for Compliance, an ebook on planning, protocols, data collection, triage, and remediation. It's a really good uh, resource for the compliance practitioner around internal investigations. Um, it's available for download. It's uh, uh, We've linked to it. It's available at no charge. So check it out and uh, add it to your stable of uh, eBooks. I know you will find it useful. So I think that uh, that ends up with all the news for the week. Um, we would like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 160 for the week ending June 28th, 2019, the six months to the Hollywood uh, holiday shopping edition. Uh, I know Tom is a uh, reserving spot at coach to uh, start looking for his leather goods for the holiday season. So I hope uh, everyone takes uh, the opportunity to start thinking about the holidays. Uh, on behalf of the compliance evangelist, Tom Fox, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, We'd like to thank you for joining us and uh, wish you an early happy 4th of July. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I'm at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode, and I hope Jay will join Jay and I again for another wrap-up of some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network, now a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.